This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Kia ora. You're listening to The Locals on Free FM 89.0. Ko Dan Armstrong, toko ingoa. The other night I was sitting outside and watching the stars and decided it had been a while since we had a space episode. So let's do one. This interview was recorded in early 2019 in a swanky hotel lobby with background music and has been sitting just waiting for a moment like this. Our guest today grew up with a love of science and maths and by the time he was at university in Boulder, Colorado, ended up working on the New Horizons probe that has gone to Pluto and beyond, and now works in lunar science. So let's crack into it. This is The Locals, and this is Dr. Andrew Poppy. So New Horizons is a NASA mission. Uh, it was conceived as far back as the late 80s. Uh, early 90s. Uh, it officially uh, launched in 2006, January 2006, uh, and its mission was to be the first reconnaissance of Pluto and its moons um, and uh, a place called the Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is a second asteroid belt uh, that exists out on uh, the very fringes of the solar system, out beyond the orbit of Neptune. Um, and it was theorized as far back as the 1950s um, but was never explored in situ, meaning with a spacecraft sitting right there, uh, until New Horizons arrived at Pluto in uh, July 2015. Uh, so the really unique thing about New Horizons is it was truly a voyage to somewhere that was undiscovered. Um, no spacecraft had really truly operated in the Kuiper Belt, flown close enough to objects to take images, take measurements of what these objects actually looked like, what they were. Um, so, so the really unique part about New Horizons is it really is a voyage to a new horizon, right? Somewhere absolutely new that humans had never explored before. So. I got a little space chills. Mm. Just good. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> I love it. Um, out of curiosity, what were you doing on New Horizons? Sure. So um, when I started uh, my PhD studies, uh, the project that I was assigned to work on for my research uh, was an instrument called the Student Dust Counter. Uh, and it was built actually by students at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, and it was attached to the, quote unquote, the front of the spacecraft. Uh, and the idea was to actually use that instrument for two purposes. One was um, what we would call an educational purpose. Let's get students um, directly involved in both the engineering and the scientific aspects of building a space mission. Because usually you have to wait till much later in your career to actually work on a, a piece of hardware that they're going to launch into space. So one half of it was educational. The other half of it, uh, the scientific side of it, was to explore um, what we call interplanetary dust or micrometeoroids. These are itty, itty bitty tiny pieces of leftover asteroids and comets. Uh, and what we really want to know is how are they distributed in the solar system? You, you often can't directly see them with your eye. You can sometimes see them before or after sunset as kind of a glow at the horizon, but with light pollution nowadays, it's not, a, it's not a common thing to see. You have to be far away. Um, but these little pieces of dust are actually little clues about what comets are made out of, about what asteroids are made out of. They tell us a little bit about how our solar system was formed. So one of the basic 
questions we have about this is how are they distributed in the solar system? Are there more in the inner solar system? Are there more in the outer solar system? Does that tell us about are they coming more from the inner asteroid belt or the Kuiper belt or from comets? Before we can answer those questions, we just have to actually go out and do basic measurements of what is out there in terms of interplanetary dust. So, it's cool stuff. Good. <laughs> yeah. So. I think half of this interview is just going to be me falling <laughs> over, over your sides. Cool. Uh, well then, I've got to ask if you said that uh, New Horizons sort of made its way to Pluto mm -hmm. a few years ago, what, mm -hmm. 2015? Correct. Where is it now? So, uh, the, the mission design, what we call it, the mission profile for New Horizons um, is what's called a flyby. It's not an orbiter. Um, so what happened is it uh, flew by Jupiter about it was 13 months after launch, so that was February 2007, and it used Jupiter's gravity to kind of slingshot it even faster out of the solar system. And then from 2007 to 2015 was what we called cruise. It was a long period, almost eight years of just waiting to get to Pluto. That's how far out Pluto is. It took eight years with essentially one of the fastest spacecraft men has ever launched. Um, so when it got to Pluto, uh, there was sort of a, <clears throat> a one-year period, six months leading up and six months leading after, where all of the really um, prime science was being taken. Uh, in reality, we only had one shot. Uh, there's no turning around, there's no do-overs or anything. You have to do it right on the first time because you're whizzing by Pluto. Uh, now, the flyby in 2015 was an absolute smashing success. Uh, the pictures were beautiful, we learned tons about Pluto and all of its moons. Um, but, as uh, the laws of physics dictate, spacecraft keeps going, doesn't turn around. Um, so now, what's uh, happening with the spacecraft is it's in a new mission phase. Uh, and it's studying uh, Kuiper Belt objects. So these are the, you can think of them as the much smaller cousins of Pluto. Um, and in fact, on New Year's Day 2019, so just a few months ago, uh, it had uh, another flyby with a much smaller object. Um, now this smaller object doesn't have an official name yet, um, but it has what we often refer to as a license plate name, a, a sort of a numeric digit. It's 2014MU69. Um, and that object is also really, really interesting because um, it is what we call sort of a cold classical object. Uh, and it's really a primordial remnant of the solar system. It hasn't been that affected by heat or collisions. It's really a almost pristine leftover building block of the solar system. Um, so what happened is uh, New Horizons flew by MU69 on New Year's Day 2019 and again kept going. Um, so the mission is actually uh, now downlinking all the data from that flyby uh, and is continuing actually to look for more objects that it can steer towards a little bit. Uh, many of the instruments are actually still recording sort of the background interplanetary space environment, including the student dust counter. Um, but hopefully, fingers crossed, um, we can start to find new objects to fly by. You can imagine that the farther away you get from the sun, the darker it gets, the farther away you are from Earth and its high-powered telescope. So the, the difficulty in finding another object to fly by goes you know, much lower and much lower. At some point, we're going to run out of objects to, to find. Um, but it should keep going for at least another dozen years or so. Um, I started working with my advisor to sort of identify pieces of science that I found really interesting um, and also pieces of science that are sort of um, relevant to the community. Uh, you want to find something to work on that sort of shares like a little Venn diagram, something that shares your own personal interests but also something that is relevant to the community. That when you go to conferences and you present your work, somebody says, oh wow, that helps me inform my other work somewhere else. Uh, and, and what happened then was that was a, uh, a good time for lunar science and lunar science exploration. And so after some brainstorming with my advisor, 
uh, we came upon this project of trying to study how uh, the lunar surface interacts with uh, electric and magnetic fields. Uh, and so I worked on a simulation um, of the electric fields right in the first meter or so above the moon um, because there had been some measurements back in the Apollo era, but then it had kind of gone untouched for a couple decades, so it was time to revisit that. From there, that was sort of my first project in lunar science. From there, I've now worked in lunar science for more than 10 years, sort of branching out larger and larger um, subject areas with lunar science. But that's, that's kind of how the, the seed got planted. So I've got to ask then, if we're planning to uh, land on the moon again in the next sort of decade or two, uh, various parties are saying, yeah, mm. we'll do it, and then it mm. gets scuttled or it gets resurrected. What are the practical implications of understanding your work in lunar science? Sure, uh, so that's a very good question because um, part of my original PhD thesis was trying to understand this environment within a couple of meters of the surface, and that's, that's the exact area in which uh, any landed spacecraft, whether there's humans on it or not, uh, is going to be immersed in. Uh, and so we want to understand what's it going to be like there, both from a scientific perspective and from an engineering perspective. How do we need to design any landers, any habitats? Um, how do humans um, need to be prepared to work in this environment? And for example, one of the biggest challenges at the moon uh, is actually the soil. Uh, it's actually very, very fine dust. So if you ever go in like a mechanical um, shop and they're grinding down pieces of metal, you know, everybody's wearing masks and things, you don't want to get that in your eyes. It turns out that the lunar soil, uh, uh, the dust that's present in the soil is actually incredibly toxic to humans because it's small enough that when you breathe it in, it can get into your bloodstream. So you, the Apollo astronauts found this out very quickly, is um, the pictures that they took of their spacesuits were covered in black and gray dust and the dust sticks to everything. So one of the pieces of science that's really important to understand is how these uh, electric fields interact with the dust and how humans who are, you know, walking around, digging in the dirt, picking up rocks, they're gonna get covered in this stuff. And we need to be able to sort of mitigate that. So understanding the science behind it helps the engineering team sort of design uh, a workable environment for either robotic or manned landers on the moon. The technology developed by the likes of NASA and organizations like that, you know, paved the way for the technology we see today sure. in modern life. Sure. What's some of the technology you've been playing with, uh, say that very loosely, mm. um, that we can look forward to seeing you know, further revolutionise life in the coming decades? Sure, sure. So there, there are a, a lot of examples of what we, we typically call technology transfer or infusion from, from one place to the next. And, and sometimes, you know, when we, we approach space science and engineering, it is such a harsh and unforgiving environment that, you know, we're forced to um, design or engineer components that <clears throat> seem completely over-engineered for what we'd need down on Earth. And, and I have colleagues who work uh, in sort of more ground-based, Earth-based science, and like, oh my god, why, why are you putting all this this stuff on your, your spacecraft? Why are you surrounding it in lead shielding? Why are you doing all this? Well, it's, the reality is when you take it out into space, it's incredibly um, harsh. There's high-energy particles, there's radiation, you can get funny temperature swings all the time. Uh, and what's not often realized is some of those technologies are maybe, you know, a decade or so ahead of their time for what we need here on Earth. So we developed some of this technology um, and then all of a sudden, 10 years later, somebody on Earth is like, wow, you know, I, I could actually really use that technology to do something that really wasn't envisioned at the time. Um, you know, to put it in a more concrete example, I worked on a mission, it's been about six years ago, called the Lunar Atmospheric and Dust Environment Explorer, LADI. 
and uh, it had three scientific instruments on it, but it also had one, what we call a technology demonstration. Uh, and it was essentially uh, an optical communication relay uh, from the moon. And it was essentially, um, you can think of it as fiber optic from the moon, but without the actual fiber cable. Uh, and what, what they did is there was a, uh, a device on the spacecraft um, that had uh, essentially a very powerful laser beam and they would shine it back to Earth and they built a custom ground station to look just for that laser beam signal. Um, I think it was somewhere in the southwest US, I forget exactly where. Um, and the data speeds that they were able to get from the moon were, I, I believe the, the, the thing that was quoted to me is you could basically stream Netflix from the moon with this instrument or something, something absolutely ridiculous, you know. Uh, and, and so this is like a hundred times the data rate um, that we've ever got uh, in deep space. And, and the fact that you could engineer this instrument uh, to work from the moon, then people start to think about like, okay, what can we do with this around Earth? Like, do we need to be stringing, you know, television cables to everybody's house individually? Or, or is there, there a clever way to do this optically? We, you know, we can have everybody have their internet connected via this. So it starts to open some, some new ideas and push some new frontiers of how this technology that was originally developed for the moon and, and other deep space uh, targets could actually maybe be used a little bit more closer to home for, for some more, you know, entertainment reasons. You know, everybody wants the fastest internet download speed, so why not have it with lasers, you know, so. You had me at lasers. I know, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Locals on Free FM 89.0. Welcome back. We continue our space episode with Dr. Andrew Poppy. I'd be curious to know about the relationship as you see it between NASA and commercial space companies, considering that these companies are built on the shoulders of NASA. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what's that relation like, yeah. relationship like for yeah. you? Yeah, so that's a, it's a very timely question because um, there's really been kind of a revolution in this area and I'd say the last five years or so. Um, and you know the the sort of mo for for nasa in the past is that they they build their own rockets they contract out to universities other labs to build scientific instruments um but really it's it's mostly contained within nasa nasa built the space shuttles they built the apollo capsules you know through contractors and etc but it's essentially all designed and managed by nasa and now maybe in the last five to ten years with things like um, SpaceX or Virgin Galactic, these other sort of um, commercial partners, that, that really is a paradigm shift for a lot of people in NASA. And, and it, it is something that's still sort of being worked out and explored. Uh, there was just the, the very successful um, Dragon capsule uh, docking at the International Space Station. That's an incredible first for commercial um, uh, space exploration. Uh, closer to home with my research, uh, there was actually a call put out I say is less than nine months ago, in summer 2018, uh, for what we call commercial lunar uh, landers. And so the idea is that uh, a multitude of companies, all independent from NASA, all private companies, um, would design their own lunar landers. So they do all the engineering, they do all the mission operations, and they would essentially provide space on top of their lander for some type of scientific instrument. And so NASA uh, split this call into two parts. One is for the commercial companies to just say, 
we have so much in our budget for this year and we want to land several of these objects on the moon and you guys give us your best bids essentially and you get to do all the design work you get to do all the engineering it's not going to be on us and the other half of the funding is to provide scientific instruments to go on these um, so just about three weeks ago uh, a group led by a, a faculty member at uc berkeley we put in our own proposal to land um, electric and magnetic field sensors that would be integrated on one of these commercial landers. So this is frankly the first time that this sort of paradigm has been used to do space exploration and the moon is sort of being used as a, uh, a guinea pig as it were, a test subject essentially. Um, I'm personally really excited about it because I think it can um, have the potential to lower the cost of access to space which is always prohibitive, it's very expensive. Uh, to launch any of these payloads into space. Um, I also think that it can uh, increase the rate at which we launch things to, to the moon and other objects. Lots of times you have to wait four years just for a chance to propose something and then it's competitive, you may not get selected, and if you do get selected it's several years of build followed by several years of you know waiting for launch to get where you're going. It can take you know a, a good chunk of your career to get one of these missions going. So there's some hope that this commercial NASA partnership can actually sort of make this exploration a little bit more routine, a little bit more accessible to the wider community. So no matter who is selected, it's actually a really exciting sort of, you might almost call it a new era in the way in which we're exploring space. And I'm very curious to see how it all plays out, and I'm hoping it's successful. And because I can only assume uh, that Elon Musk listens to this community radio station sure. at the bottom of the world. Sure. You know, he's got to. Uh, if you could say anything to Elon, what would it be? Oh, that's a that's a tough question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I certainly admire the, the the drive and enthusiasm that Elon Musk has. I, I I've never certainly never met him. I've never heard him speak in public. But um, you know, I might say something like, "It's actually a really cool thing that you're doing." I mean, SpaceX is is incredible, and to see the what I think looked like to me a near flawless launch of the Dragon capsule, I'd say keep going. Like we could really use this type of commercial infusion and this type of, you know, energy and, and the sort of um, attitude of, you know, we'll bring the cost down, we'll make it efficient, we'll make it reliable. You know, there's certain lessons from from the sort of commercial community and, and the business community at large that you know, maybe could help NASA out a little bit, help make it a little more leaner, a little little more um, efficient in some ways. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to you know things like SpaceX and, and other uh, companies that are in the same field um, of, of really sticking to this and continuing to to introduce new ideas, new products, new instrumentation um, that can really help us scientists get to where we want to go in a much easier fashion. And we'll move into our quickfire section All right. now. Um, and. I don't know, if you win, you can have the chocolate I've already given you. Sure. And maybe even a crisp high five. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so, ready? Let's do it. Okay. Next Haley's Comet. Oh. And I want to say it's something like 2087? 2061. Oh, too late. Okay. Imagine the moon is actually made of cheese. Okay. What type of cheese is it? Oh, no, that's a really good question. So I would I would think it's something of a, a harder cheese, like a manchego, not not a soft brie, because if it was brie, all the astronauts would have sunk into it. So it's, it's a hard Italian cheese in my mind. Okay, so. okay. There's no wrong answer to that. All right, good. <laughs> something that you do in your job mm -hmm. that makes you still think, wow, I study space. Oh, 
this this happens almost every day. I mean, oh, what's what's a recent example? Um, oh my gosh, there's so many things. Um, <clears throat> you know, what, maybe, maybe from a couple years ago when I was first learning to study about uh, this moon of Jupiter called Ganymede, the largest moon, actually the largest moon in the solar system, the largest moon of Jupiter. Um, it has enough of a thin little atmosphere that it actually has aurora, what we call northern or southern light. So, you know, we think of this as being uh, something that happens on Earth. We know it happens in Jupiter and Saturn, but it actually happens on the moon of Jupiter. Like, you could be standing on the surface of, of Ganymede and Jupiter's hanging out in the sky and above you are these faint green lights that you're seeing. There are aurora on one of Jupiter's moons. That is so cool. That really gets me excited. That's got me excited. This question comes from my 11-year-old niece. Okay, let's do it. And I've sort of zhuzhed it up as well. All right. Uh, how long does it take a person to get to the moon? Ah, that's a good question. Depends on how fast you go and what route you take. Now, the Apollo astronauts took about, I think it was about three days or so. Um, but they had a pretty powerful rocket attached to the back of them uh, that sends them on a lunar transfer orbit that kind of looks like a big figure eight, kind of goes around the Earth a couple times, takes three days of transit, goes around the moon, and then comes back. Um, that's the fastest way, I believe, is, is this, to get there without um, just zooming by the moon. You can actually get to the moon, I think, within, uh, the New Horizons spacecraft set a record, I believe. It was like less than an hour or something because they had a massive rocket attached to the bottom to it. And they, they weren't really shooting through the moon, they were shooting for Pluto. Um, but you want to get as big a kick as you can at the beginning. Um, now, other spacecraft, I, I work on another spacecraft called Artemis, which is a, a pair of spacecraft that are currently at the moon. Uh, they took close to, I want to say, 18 months to get to the moon because we only had a little bit of fuel and we had to be really clever that if we just used little bits of fuel at the right points in the orbit, we would slowly drift and do this really beautiful dance around both the Earth and the moon over uh, 18 months or so. And eventually the moon's uh, gravity capture them. So it can be anywhere from an hour to 18 months. So bring a good book to read if you're on the 18 month schedule, so. Your favorite moon that isn't our one or Ganymede? Oh, okay, that's a good question. Um, favorite moon. So there's a really cool moon of Saturn called Iepetus. Um, and one half of Iepetus is bright white, like the purest ice you can imagine. And the other half of Iepetus is just tar black. Uh, and it almost looks kind of, kind of a yin and yang symbol of outer space. Uh, and there's a lot of theories that were put out of how could you get a moon where one half of it is, is bright white and the other half of it is dark black. It turns out that the, the best theory, which seems to be borne out, is there's a farther out moon um, called Phoebe, which is actually shedding dark black dust, and that dust slowly spirals in, and the first big object that it encounters is the backside of Iepetus. So poor little Iepetus is just drowning in Phoebe's dust, and what I'm actually seeing is the icy part is what Iepetus really looks like, and the dark part is the unfortunate part that's being rained on with all this black dust. And it's a, it's a beautiful moon to go look at. If you look at Cassini images of Iepetus, these beautifully crisp images of where you can see all the dust patterns laying on the surface of the moon. It's, it's a really cool uh, moon at Saturn, so. Obviously, it's a well-known fact that the Earth is flat. Of course. Uh, is the moon flat too? Um, I've only ever seen one side of it. <laughs> well, exactly. It's got to be just a flat disk or something, okay. right? No. Is that why it takes the 18 months to get there? <laughs> yeah, I know. It is definitely a, a <laughs> near spherical... <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> oh. uh, finally, a piece of advice for younger Andrew. 
That's a good question. Um, and and I've, you, you gave me a heads up for this question, so I spent a little time furiously thinking about it in the back of my mind. Um, you know, personally, I think I would go back and encourage myself to be um, a little bit more outgoing, a little bit more engaged. I have sort of a natural um, shy streak that's taken me a, a long time to get over. Um, but what I've found, uh, you know, maybe in the last 10 or 15 years is that um, a lot of other scientists in the field are so excited to talk about their work that you should never feel, uh, you know, embarrassed or timid when you go and ask them about their work. I mean, people come and ask me about stuff, I will just talk for hours about the moon, about the moons of Jupiter, and anything you want to know. I'm so happy to talk about something that somebody else is interested in. Um, so, uh, you know, I've sort of learned that over the years that you can go and knock on people's doors and, and say like, hey, I, I saw you wrote a paper 10 years ago. Can I just ask you a bunch of questions? Oh my God, they get so excited. Somebody finally read the paper. You know, so, so a piece of advice I think for myself to, to go back is, you know, don't be, don't be so shy and timid and, and be more willing to knock on people's doors and, and talk to people at conferences and things like that. Because that is actually how brand new ideas get formed. There's a little spark in a conversation like, oh, you know, we never thought about it that way. And, and those things don't happen if you don't engage people and you don't sort of take a little bit of risk to just ask what might be a silly question, but could actually be a pretty deep and fundamental question that nobody's ever thought about before. So, And there you have it. Thank you, Andrew. I love doing these space episodes. And one thing I must add is that that object that New Horizons had a look at received an official name, Arakos meaning sky in the Pohutan and Algonquin language. Andrew is based in America, but if you want to know more about space locally, the Te Aumutu Space Centre is putting up resources on their website during lockdown. That's spacecentre.nz. And as always, I have your local contacts. The main symptoms of COVID-19 are a dry cough, fever and breathlessness. And if you're experiencing these, call Houseline 0800 358 5453. People can call 0800 800 405 if they're struggling to access food, medication, or other household goods and services. If you're in the Waitomo, Waipa, and Otrahanga areas, that's the Western Waikato Emergency Management 0800 400 405. Additionally, the Rural Support Trust is 0800. 787-254. And in an emergency, call 111. I hope those numbers help. That wraps up another episode of The Locals. You can find this and other shows on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Free FM. And on the Dan Armstrong Y Park and Country Facebook page. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode. But until next time, thanks for listening. Cheers. Enohora. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.